I need to thank my friend Mr. Ben Lewis at Roman Home. Mr. Ben has designed a really awesome tent. It's a cross between a wall tent and a range teepee. It's built to take tough weather, high winds. Craftsmanship is amazing. And it's made right here in the USA. Right here in Utah, USA. And uh, right now, Ben has a special going on. You can save 500 bucks. And uh, go to romanhome.com. Roman spelled R-O-A-M-I-N. Romanhome.com. And uh, tell Ben hello. Tell him Ty sent you. Welcome to the Everyday Mealmanship Podcast. I'm Ty Evans, and today is our debrief episode on our recent clinic in Hopkins, Michigan. Uh, Just finished up a really good clinic. Had a great time, really good people, and let's talk about it. Um, A lot of things come up, uh, a lot of learning opportunities, and... uh, yeah, kind of a, a personal highlight for me here at this clinic. I'll talk about that in a little bit. But um, anyways, this clinic was, like I said, at Hopkins, Michigan. And our host, uh, Jerry and Cheryl Johnson, they are just uh, amazing. And they were willing to do this clinic here at their place on a whim ranch. And this is our third time doing a clinic here. Um and just a beautiful setting, just a beautiful setting. They got these these gorgeous pastures and and a nice little spot for everybody to camp. And um, they got an outdoor arena and an indoor arena and just very accommodating. So really grateful to, to have Jerry and Cheryl, you know, and they even did, they even went kind of, they, they went above and beyond as hosts and, uh, they had breakfast, lunch, and dinner for everybody every day. Cheryl and her mother-in-law, or her mother, uh, worked just extensively on cooking for everybody. Pretty much the whole three days they were spent, uh, I think they spent it cooking. And, you know, uh, having having breakfast, lunch, and dinner with everybody every day was, was, was really enjoyable um, to get to sit with everybody and get to visit with everybody. Um, I, I didn't make all the meals every time because sometimes I was preparing for the next class or saddling a mule or, or whatever. But, uh, you know, being able to hang out outside of the actual arena, the clinic setting was pretty fun. And, and every night Jerry would get a get a fire going and we'd all visit by the fire. And and that was that was fun to get to visit with everybody there, too. So uh, really enjoyed it. Um, it was interesting. If, you, if you've never been to our clinics, um, the evening before our clinic starts, so typically our clinics start on Thursday, the evening before, so Wednesday evening, we have a, we put it in the letter, a mandatory meeting, um, and we have a little meet and greet. And uh, even though it's a mandatory meeting, there's so many people that don't show up to that uh, for, for one reason or another, maybe they got things going, you know, at home and they couldn't quite get away yet. Some people just don't care to come and do any more than they have to, I guess, at the class, you know. Uh, but uh, I was a little, I was a little worried uh, um, <laughs> when we uh, were having our meeting because there's only four people here uh, for the cl- uh, for the meeting. That's it. So, you know, um, more than 
there's, there's, I don't know, five or six of them that were still left to come that, you know, didn't get to get the meeting, get to chat. So I was a little worried because sometimes those people will come a little unprepared, but anyways, they, they all made it the next day and, uh, or most of them anyways, and we got them lined out, but, uh, yeah, for a minute there, I was like, oh, where's the rest of this crowd here? Um, you know, hoping they got the right information or sometimes, you know, dates can get mixed up or whatever. We do our clinics Thursdays through Saturdays, and a lot of people forget that or don't realize that. We don't do clinics on Sundays, um, but a lot of people are used to other clinicians doing things on Sundays, so they're thinking Friday, Saturday, Sunday. So that's happened before, too, so I was kind of worried that, oh, maybe the dates are mixed up, but they, they showed up. They showed up. So I want to kind of go go uh, through the days here um, and through uh, some some things that come up. <laughs> so there's some there's uh, there's lots of things to learn from here. Um, a lot of little lessons that I'd like to talk about on this debrief that'll ho hopefully help you a bit. Um, day one foundation class. If I can give any of you a word of advice is do not be late on day one of the foundation class. Uh, typically, you know, the foundation class has quite a few colts in it or older mules and horses that maybe need some help. And uh, if you're going to come to the foundation class and, and participate in that, don't be late. Be early. You want to be early on that first day, especially let your mule, your horse get in there, settle down. Um, but I get out to the foundation class and there's considering there, there's only four people in the foundation class, but there's only two of them there. And, uh, a couple of them came in late and I give them plenty of crap for being late. I like to be pretty punctual, but, um, the, the problem with coming in late is, is, uh, whether you're a chronically late person or not, you know, you're going to have a little anxiety being late. Um, and then, uh, in, in a new place in a clinic like this and whatever, you're going to have a bit of stress and that's not going to help your situation with your mule because your, your mule is, is going to be a little stressed too. And then you got to consider the environment you're putting your animals in. It is totally unnatural for them to show up and hang out with all these other animals and not sort things out amongst themselves. So we take them to a clinic like this and we want to keep them contained, which that's what I recommend. I don't recommend we all <laughs> let them all, you know, uh, kick and bite and push each other around and sort out this herd hierarchy. But, um, anyways, it's going to be challenging for them to, to kind of get, get settled in there. Um, because that's not normal for them to do that in a, in a nat natural setting. They would want to figure out, um, a little bit of hierarchy. Now their leadership works a little different than ours does. It's not quite as cut and dry as ours is, but they try to figure out, you know, who they get along with and, and kind of who, who moves who here and, and whatnot. Um, and try to get comfortable. They seek comfort above all. So anyways, when you come late to the foundation class, you're just, you're almost just asking for it, um, for trouble. And that first day of the foundation class, Oh man, all, all four participants, they were getting run over, pushed around. Um, it was, it was quite the mess in the foundation class. And I told them all, I said, you guys are in the right place. Don't you worry. We'll get you lined out. And by day three, things will be a little different. Uh, but they were really, 
really pushy animals. And, and I don't, uh, you know, I just use that word pushy to describe them. But, you know, really these animals are just seeking some comfort. Um, they're just looking for some comfort. Um, and they're not, uh, you know, saying that an animal is pushy is actually a kind of, to me, implying that the mule might be a little bit belligerent. And we all know now uh, that that's really not even a possibility for the animal. To, to be that way they're, they're incapable of being you know belligerently pushy that's not that's not a trait that any equine has uh now they may push you around but it's not belligerent it's it's because you have uh you've opened the door and your quote-unquote bubble means nothing to the horse or to the mule and uh you know they'll yeah that if, you, if you're not if you're not going to going to do anything to keep them from doing that um you know that's just another place for them to be and uh, some some of you that have been to my clinics and are listening now here uh you've heard me talk about the weaning process and how so many mules are are not weaned correctly um and i was explaining this to the to the group here this week but we and maybe you've heard this on, I've, I know I've talked about it on previous podcast episodes, so you might be hearing this over again. I apologize if that's you. But, you know, uh, if, if you understand how a, how a foal is weaned naturally, you'll see how weird it is the way that we wean them artificially. You know, naturally, these mares will wean the foal typically, you know, a few weeks and sometimes a month or so, maybe a maybe even a couple months before before they're going to have the next foal um that's when they wean their their current foal off is right basically just a a little while before they have the next baby and they say all right listen listen joey it's time for you to to grow up get a job get a haircut and move out of the house because i can only support one <laughs> right your dad ain't around so i need you to get out um you know and then that mare will start making it uncomfortable for that foal to stick around. One things, one of the things that foals do when they're nervous or when they're bothered is they will lean up against their mothers. They'll lean their shoulders up against their mothers, and then they kind of turn their head and look away. Now, I see this every single week at the clinics. The mules will do the same things to, to the human. They will lean up against the human and look out to the outside. So basically, they kind of push that human. Now, they are, again, just seeking comfort. They're not pushing you to, to be belligerent, okay? Now, back to the natural weaning. Naturally, that, that mother would, would, start, uh, would start pushing that foal off and, and wouldn't let that foal do that anymore when, when she's about to have the next baby. She, if that foal come up and leaned on her, uh, she'd probably drive it off, maybe bite it, maybe nip at a little bit, uh, whatever, um, to get the foal off of her. Okay, and she'd teach it how to wean. Now, we wean them artificially. So typically, uh, like I, I pick up a, a weanling every year or two from my good pal, Donnie Oldham at Rockin' O'Mules. Shout out to Rockin' O'Mules. Um, raises some fantastic cowbred mules. Um Anyways, uh, you know, they're, they're weaned at anywhere from, from four to six months of age. And, 
you know, we, we pull him off the, the mother and Donnie does a pretty good job of weaning him. I like how he does it. Um, but, um, but, but typically we pull him off that age and then, you know, we play with them and, and, uh, you know, they're so cute. Right. And those, those mules, the same, same little babies, they'll come up and they'll, they'll lean against you. They'll kind of come close to you there. If they're, if they're, um, if they're not too worried about you, that is. And, they kind of try to start treating you like they treated their mothers. They kind of lean against you for a little support. And you think it's so cute, right? Oh, it's so cute. Look at this little baby. And you pet him all over. And he's so cute. And he's got that little baby mule hair. And oh, you, oh, you just love it. Yeah, I, I do the same thing. Don't worry, guys. I do the same thing. Um, it's cute until they're five years old running us over the same way. And what happens when we wean them artificially and, and obviously we all need to, you need to wean them artificially. I'm not saying to wean them naturally. I don't really think that's in the best interest for what we are trying to do with our foals. Um, but when we wean them artificially like that, they often miss out on that time period where that mother teaches them not to push. Um, I got a friend in Utah Shout out to Wes Taylor. And uh, he, he works with a lot of Mustangs. And it's been fun over the years to watch him and and his work. And, you know, one thing about those, those Mustangs, though, you guys, is rarely, I mean extremely rarely, is a Mustang pushy. They're not that way. They're not going to come lean against you, push you, run you over. Now, they may run away from you. <laughs> they might be scared to death of you. But they ain't going to come push you. And it's not necessarily them being scared of a human or not, but their mothers tuned them up for the whole pushing thing, the whole leaning thing. Their mothers tuned them up when they were weaned themselves. So, uh, anyways, what I'm getting at is a lot of times these, these foals never learn not lean and push. And so the first day of this clinic, all four of them mules were doing just that, just all over these, these guys. And so, you know, we went right to work and, and the very first thing I do to get them off of you to get them so they don't lean on you and hang on you and push on you is we start working at clearing the front moving that shoulder getting that shoulder to yield one way or the other it's the first thing we tune up on and uh, if you can get that going why a lot of this pushing problem will fade away i guarantee it so we kind of got that going now um it also teaches them how to move, how to go. A lot of these, a lot of these foals um, don't know how to move, and we don't teach them. To, we don't work at that as the babies. We kind of just let them be babies, and that's fine. But uh, one of the other mistakes that happens when we—I'm back to the weaning thing now. Okay, one of the mistakes that happens when we wean them is we take them out, take them away from their mother, and we stick them in isolation. Now this is. Uh, was talking later on in mulemanship one but the easiest way to make a herd bound mule is to wean it like this you'll make them herd bound and just give them extreme separation anxiety all the way back to this childhood if you want to call it childhood fullhood <laughs> moment okay when they were weaned taken off their mother stuck in isolation that's just the worst and the dumbest thing you guys can do um weaning a, a foal like that you'll just you're just making a herd bound mess later on. 
And you might think, well, I'll teach them how to be by themselves and then they'll be fine by themselves. No, they won't. They're, they're not wired that way. These are herd animals. The best way you can wean is to pull them off their mothers and then put them with maybe, uh, well, I love how Donnie does it back to rocking on mules. You know, I love how he pulls them off and puts them with the other, the other foals. So they're not by themselves. They get to go with the other foals. I think that's a fantastic way to, to wean them. Uh, put them with the other babies. Now, maybe you don't have any other babies. Well, put them with a, put, put them with another mare or something that is, um, you know, that's, that doesn't have a full, so they, you know, so they don't start sucking on her. Um, but, or maybe a, a gilding or maybe a, uh, some other mules that are pretty quiet. They're not going to run that full around much or, you know, whatever, uh, that's a great way to do it. Um, when we get our weanlings home every year, I have, you know, we've got yearlings in ho- at home. We've got two-year-olds, three-year-olds, four-year-olds, five-year-olds, six-year-olds. We've got all the, basically all the ages up to six at this point. And then a, bunch, a couple of older ones. But um, when we get the wean, when we pick up our weanling here in a couple of weeks, I'm just going to, I'm just going to turn it loose with our yearlings. So that's, that's where she's going to go live. Anyway, so she'll she'll also learn how to go, how to move, because all those 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 animals are not going to be just standing around, and, and they are going to drive each other off, and they're going to learn how to move. And that's another thing that gets missed when you guys put them in by themselves. Their isolation is they don't get as much stimulation on moving and going forward, and they really need that, I think. I think that foal needs to run around, buck, and kick, and jump, and they play fight, and... And they run around and have a good time. Uh, that's great for bone. That's great for muscle. That's great for, for their mental well-being. So, anyways, I'm going to move on a little bit here. Um, I want to talk about a, a fella here that was just super inspirational. Um, a fella named Mark, okay? And he had a mule named Ginger here. Now, Mark comes here and um, he pulls in and he's had a bad day. He 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 had missed the the meeting but not particularly on any fault of his own other than he couldn't get his mule in his trailer and it took him hours to get his mule in his trailer and then and then he uh he got lost trying to get here and and he realized he left his wallet at home so he couldn't get gas and all oh, this fella had a he had a bad day on Wednesday coming to the clinic uh, coming to the meeting, you know, and he finally gets here and he makes it. And anyways, we're, he's just kind of a bit rattled and, you know, I don't want you guys to be in that state of mind when you come to the clinic. So I just said, Hey, you know what? Everything's going to be fine. Don't worry about it. Um, you know, we, we got him some cash so that he didn't have to worry about not having any, any money here. Um, you know, and, and whatnot, got him all taken care of that way. His son sent a little money and helped him out. And anyways, it, it all worked out. So he, he could, he could be here for the week and, and be fine. Um, but he was flustered and anyways, he comes to the, to the clinic the next morning and, uh, uh, we're talking and he, he hasn't, th- this meal is 20 years old that he brought. Ginger is 20 years old. And he hasn't ridden this mule. Well, what he said was probably maybe 10 years or, oh shoot, maybe it was 12 or 13 years. <laughs> That's got that one. He didn't know how long. Somewhere between 10 and 13 years since the last time he rode this mule, worked this mule, did anything with this mule. 
he's just had a lot of life happening the past 10 to 13 years. A lot has happened in his world and he hasn't been able to ride. And I didn't ask this guy how old he was. Um, I'm not sure how old he is. Um, but he was, uh, I'll say he was not young at all. Okay. But what I was inspired by Mark is not one time did he say, oh, I'm too old for this. It's, that's one of my, that's one of my, you know, people always talk about your pet peeve phrases. And I know I, I probably say a lot of people's pet peeve phrases, you know, um, different phrases that people don't enjoy. But I'll tell you one I don't enjoy is I'm too old. I just don't like that. Um, the reason is, is I've, uh, and a lot of you listen, I got some of you listening to this podcast or some of my oldest participants at my clinics. The oldest participant I've ever had at a clinic is 86. And I regularly get folks in their, in their mid to late seventies and it's fantastic. And, um, and then it's funny, I go somewhere else and somebody that's 35 says, oh, I'm too old for that. I'm like, no, oh, bull crap. You know, you ain't too, <laughs> too old for that. You know, um, I've had uh, people in my cult starting clinics and they're in their at 75. We had a lady in the cult starting this week, Miss Bonnie, uh, or not this week, excuse me, this year, Bonnie Brown, 75. Just amazing you know, incredible starting cults. And, um, so you're only as old as you, you make yourself out to be, I suppose. But this, this Mark, he did not use age at all as an excuse. Now, by the end of the clinic, he did both classes. He did foundation and mulemanship one. And by the end, he was dang sure sore and wore out, but that guy did not complain. I could tell he was sore by the way he moved at the end of the days and, at the end of the clinic, but he did not complain one time. Now he gets there and he hasn't rode, hasn't saddled, hasn't done anything for, you know, maybe 13 years now. And he, uh, he, he comes and wants some help in the mulemanship one class, um, getting a saddle rigged up. And I go over there to help him with his saddle and his saddle is just a mess. Um, he's, he's got, he's, it's all tore apart. And, um, I mean, uh, he's, he's missing, parts of the saddle and misses missing pieces here and there and and i said man we we kind of we got a mess here um i want you to just do your groundwork here in this class again and then why don't we do a little private session this evening and i'll help you and i don't typically do private you know sessions in the evening because that's usually when i'm you know get my family time and and uh you know visiting and I'm wore out usually at the end of the day, but this guy needs some help. So I said, I'll help you tonight. Okay. So he comes later that night and we get, we, we get a saddle for him that's usable because his is not usable. Um, Jerry was so generous as to, uh, you know, to, um, let him use one of his saddles. Anyways, we get the saddle rigged up and I'm starting to work, do a little work with this mule. And, and I have some standards here before I get on, um, I need to be able to do basically everything in our groundwork class. I need to do all that before I'm going to get on. And I'm very particular about that these days. Um, I used to not be. I used to just get on whatever. But, you know, I've realized that um, a big part of having success is the preparation that goes into it. Um, so I believe I should prepare. Anyway, so I started doing the groundwork with this mule. The mule 
uh, you know, this poor ginger, she really has no clue all the things I'm asking her. She has never done groundwork. It's totally clear. If she ever did, it wasn't much. But I work through it, and it's quite challenging. But I get a basic level of understanding. I probably did groundwork with her for 20 minutes before I got on. And, uh, you, you know, I had no intention of riding the mule, but I was kind of in the moment working the mule. And I thought, you know, I'm going to. I'm going to get on this mule for Mark because I don't want him to get on. And and if there was any bind that might happen, I don't want him to get in the bind. I, I don't know that he could have. Well, he, I, he, I know he couldn't have handled it um, in his somewhat frail condition. He couldn't have handled it. So anyways, I got on the mule. Now, this mule, Ginger, like I said, she's 20 years old, but hadn't been ridden in 13 years. So you're going back to the last time she was rode was a seven-year-old. And by their seven, by the time they're seven, you know, they're really, they're really, they can't be that broke by the time they're seven. You know, I mean, if you start them at three years old, that's only, that's really only four years of riding and a typical rider is just kind of going out once a week or something and maybe just a couple times a month. So, you know, they're, they're really, they really can't have that much experience by then. So this meal probably has never really had a whole lot done. And I get on this mule, and that's clear. What I just said is absolutely clear. She's never had much done. She doesn't really know how to do anything. But she just has an easy way about her, a willingness. And I just looked at this mule like, man, you could have, you know, you could have really been something, and you still can be something. And I told Mark that. They said, this this mule could have been just a really great mule, and she still can be a really great mule you just need to stick to it and keep working and keep trying and keep building and um i hope he does but anyways i got on the mule wrote it for him and then i said okay mark your turn so i got off and we we got mark on the in the saddle and he was riding around and you just never seen a, a grin so big in your life he was so happy to be riding again and i don't know what that would be like not riding for that long and then being able to ride again but he he sure expressed maybe what it's like a little bit because he was sure happy and you know uh i get asked by friends and family at home particularly you know why do you why do you do what you do ty why do you you know you drive all over the country and you all over the world you go all over the world doing these clinics and you're away from family you know you miss birthdays and weddings and funerals and events and reunions and it's never ending you miss a lot of life why do you do it and it's people like mark and all of you listening that work so hard that is why i do it so i can show up here and i can help somebody like mark and his mule ginger get going again and i can see that happiness just that smile that happiness from from mark from this guy just made my whole clinic worth it. It was just great. So this is a good time to take a quick break and thank our sponsor. So I'll be right back. we got more to talk about from our Hopkins, Michigan clinic. Hey, you want to jump on here real quick and give a big shout out to my buddy, Colt Naring. Um, if you're looking for a good custom built saddle that fits mules and fits you, you need to check out Colt Saddlery. You find them on Facebook, Colt salary and uh, tell him Ty sent you. He will take good care of you. Okay, friends, we're back. And I'm just 
doing a debrief on our Hopkins, Michigan mulemanship clinic. Um, we just talked about Mark and Ginger and their success and how that's just so worth it. And I want to talk about uh, a couple other highlights from this clinic that I think you guys would like to hear about. Um, a fellow named Bob riding a cult named Frank. <laughs> this is one of my favorite moments of the clinic. So we're going through transitions and uh, trying to get some walk, trot, lope out of these mules and mulemanship one. And Frank, and this is great. Sky has a whole sequence of, of pictures of this. And I'm going to, I, I want to write, uh, I want to write an article or, or some blog talking about this because this is, it was just fantastic. Um, this is something I try to teach. I try to show, I, I, you know, a lot of you that have saw me start cults have seen this before, but Bob did an excellent job. So he's working on getting lope out of this mule and, and Frank is cult just keeps on kicking up like uh it 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 got his front end off the ground and did one little buck one time but the rest of the time it was just was kicking out and it was kicking out sideways a whole bunch when the mules kick out sideways when they're trying to lope it is really difficult to ride and um you know they kick out sideways you might feel like you got bucked off but you, you know it it really just kicked out but when they twist and sunfish like that it's really awkward to ride Anyways, this mule kept on kicking out, and Bob did so good at not jerking back on the reins. He gave those reins to that mule, and he hustled it. And I'm talking to him in the microphone while that mule's kicking out and being a ding-dong. Hustle. Push that mule through it. Push it through that, because that mule has to slow down to set up and buck. But if you can hustle through it, you'll just keep it just kicking out, and then maybe uh, maybe get it to quit kicking out and just get to line out and lope or trot or whatever it is you're trying to do. And Bob did an excellent job. So if you're ever dealing with a mule that's kicking out constantly, maybe while you're trying to do some transitions, maybe there's a little resistance there, you got to hustle through that. And Bob did excellent. And at the same time, you can't pull back. And Bob did excellent at that. So shout out to you, Bob. If you're listening, I know you listen to the podcast. Good job, man, uh, for handling Frank through that kicking and little hop skipping mess that he was giving you. Um, I hope you get to see the sequence of the pictures. It, Sky posts them on Facebook. I know that. Um, go to our Facebook, TS Mules. And I'll probably post on Instagram too because it was a really great sequence of how to handle your reins, how to push through that and not get upset. Bob was not affected by it in the least at all. Just didn't even blink. Just kept on going. And that was really neat to see because a lot of people... A lot of people would get upset and that would bother them and, and that would get them worried and didn't bother him. Um, another fellow that I want to mention uh, was Mr. Neil. Um, now, Neil, he told me after, I didn't know this before the clinic, but after the clinic, he told me that on that last day, it was his 20th ride in his life. <laughs> That's it in his life. And I thought, oh my gosh, Neil, you, you're doing really good for only riding 20 times in your life. Um, I'm not sure this fellow's age, but, uh, you know, he's, you know, definitely starting late out in life uh, with riding, but it was really impressive his willingness to learn. But I want to talk about the trot a little bit because he, his, his big worry was learning how to sit the trot. Now, had he told me that that was only the 20th time he'd ever ridden, um, I might have. I might've eased him into it a bit more, 
but I just kind of made him hustle and trot, like to trot, move, go. And he did it and he got to trot and, and he did great. But, you know, when you're learning how to trot, um, it's really challenging to, for, for people to learn how to sit the trot, learn how to post the trot and learn how to ride the extended trot, these different speeds. And usually it's because they don't realize that there is three different speeds at that trot that you can utilize quite a lot of. Um, and what you do on each trot will make the difference on how it feels to ride that thing. You know, a, a slow little jog, it's too slow to post. Um, it's easier to sit that little jog. Uh, your your medium trot, kind of a, a working trot, is is too fast and rapid to sit and if you just try to sit and brace through that you're just going to bounce and bounce and bounce and it's you're going to smack your butt just sore and um you, you got to post it it's easier to post that um the extended trot that's the fast trot you're working you're hustling that's easiest ridden on the balls of your feet and you're kind of tip forward just a little bit and you got a lot of life in your body that's easiest ridden that way um, if you're trying to post that one, it's often too fast to keep up. If you're trying to sit, well, it's almost impossible to sit that. So anyways, he was trying to figure this out. But, you know, before you can really trot a lot, you, you, you kind of have to get to where you can sit loosely in the saddle. If you are still trying to have tenseness in your feet, your calves, your ankles, your knees, your thighs, in your butt, if you're if you're riding too tight. Um, the trot is going to be really difficult for you. And um, a suggestion I give Neil and any of you that are working on trying to sit the trot better is, is practice this. Whenever you get into a trot, maybe you're not quite sure. Is this a slow trot? Is this a fast trot? What, what am I, what am I doing? Is this a medium trot? Try to sit a couple and then try to post a couple, sit a couple, post a couple, go back to walking, get them to trot again, sit a couple, post a couple, Practice just loosening your legs up and relaxing while you trot. Uh, if your butt gets to bouncing in the saddle, put your heels down a bit. Let a little shock come out of your heels. Um, if you get to bouncing some more, try to to post a couple. And shift up and down through that. But I was telling Neil, he, he, I, he said, now nah, I'm just really not interested in this trotting and this loping. I'm not going to do a lot of it. And I, I just ride down the trail. I said, that's fine, Neil. But... You know, you want to be able to have control of your mule at all speeds. Secondly, you want to be comfortable riding all speeds and transitions. You don't want to be uncomfortable, um, you know, going at any of these speeds. You need, you need this. It's going to give you confidence. Because um, if you don't have confidence riding the trot and the lope, it's always going to be lingering in there. What if they run? What if something spooks them and they just trot? There's people that have a panic attack just because their mule trots off. You want to have confidence that you can handle that. So I, I told him this and we worked through this. And anyways, if any of you are in the same boat uh, trying to get comfortable with the trot, um, there's a couple of suggestions for you. Hopefully that'll help you. Another little thing that come up was a fellow named Tom here riding a mule named Betty. And and this is just a short little thing, but um, he was he was really wanting to pick up some leads and and uh, trying to get the uh, right lead and having some trouble picking up the right lead. And, but one thing he kept on doing, and this is why he had some trouble there, is, is he was taught to bend the mule away from the way you want him to go. So see, you're trying to pick up a right lead. He was taught to bend him to the left and and kick him there to the 
you know, with the, the left leg back, um, which that part of it is correct, but the bending part is, is in, incorrect and you'll get them really out of balance. Uh, whenever I'm trying to pick up a lead, I want to be able to see the corner of the inside eye. So if I'm trying to pick up a right lead, I should be able to see the corner of the inside eye. I like them tipped to the right a little bit. Um, and that's also the same position, like you, you you would do a haunches in or something like that. It's a great way to change a lead. But they need to be able to engage the uh, the inside front foot and the outside hind foot to pick up those leads. And if you kind of counterbend them like that, uh, I see a lot of people that do that. And I suppose if it works for them, well, that's great. There's a lot of things that work, y'all. But when you're trying to work on some of the biomechanics and trying to build build this balance in your mules um picking up your lead like that will will give you a lot of bad habits and really get them leaning bad um you know if, and if you want to be a little bit more common sense okay this really helps you common sense are here okay picture you're chasing a cow okay and the cow heads off to the right and you want to you know you want your mule to go after the cow well it wouldn't make any sense for you to tip them to the left and try to get that right lead. That's you, you want your mule going with the cow and, and they should be able to cha change leads with that cow because cows are, <laughs> cows are fantastic at flying lead changes. You guys, if you want to learn how to do a flying lead change, watch those cows because they can change leads quickly, but you want your mule just as quick and you, you want them following that cow. So you wouldn't tip the nose away. That wouldn't be an efficient way to change a lead. So that's just a little note on lead changes there. Um, got to talk about one more mule in person here. Um, maybe two more. We'll see. Uh, there's a mule named Steve here. First mule I've ever known named Steve. Uh, a nice woman named Beth brought Steve. This is a two-year-old colt. And um, a little bit of a firecracker. Uh, and a lonely bugger. Um, she had him in. So, so the panels that were set up here were kind of some weak panels um, in the pasture there for these corrals. They weren't very tough, um, sure enough. And this mule pushes on these panels, and it doesn't take much. If the mules will find a livestock of any kind, are well, actually prey animals of any kind are just totally wired to find the weak points to find a way out all the time if you've ever turned your mule out into a pasture you'll notice they'll go on that perimeter they will trot that perimeter and just they want to know the boundaries and they want to know a way out and this is just how they're made cows do the same thing if you turn a bunch of cows in the pasture doesn't matter how green that grass is they're going to check the perimeter and be looking for a way out okay um but this, uh, if they figure out that way out or, or a weak spot and they break through it a few times, they, they know it. And this mule kind of pushed the panels and actually broke the welds on one of the panels, I suppose, um, to where the, the panels just kind of come open and she couldn't keep them closed. And, and he learned this and he got out multiple times and we, we're in the middle of the mulemanship one class and here comes Stevie just trotting up the class again. And <laughs> we just kind of all chuckling but poor beth was not chuckling she has to go catch him again and put him back again and anyways it got so difficult for her um well rather so discouraging for her that um she said she came to me on um 
on Friday evening and said, I'm going to go home. I can't keep the mule in the pen. I don't know what to do. And anyway, so we went down there and we helped her reinforce the pen. We called it Fort Knox because we, we reinforced the pen, brought in more panels and got that thing tough. And, um, the mule stayed in that night, but she had a big question like, okay, how, how do I teach this guy to stay in the pen? How do I get him to, to stay here and not get, you know, want to push out and get out all the time? What do I do? And, uh, you know, once they kind of learn how to get out of there and they've done a multiple, a multiple, you know, multiple amount of times, then it, they're going to try it for sure. Uh, just cause they do it once doesn't make a thing, but when they do it 10 times, it's kind of a thing. Okay. Um, so she says, how do I work on this? And I said, there's, there's a few things you can do at home to work on this. Obviously here is not the best place to work on this because you got this corral out here in the middle of the open pasture. They can push the corral down, uh, get out of the corral. It's, it, this is not the best spot. And, and I can totally relate to her feeling the way she felt because there's oftentimes I want to work on things with my mules, but the facilities I'm at, the places I'm at, uh, just don't, just don't fit to be able to work on things, you know, um, you know, you just, you know, have, have a meals tied up to my, I like my meals tied up, but I feel bad when they tear up grass, you know, um, I like to have my meals, um, you know, uh, standing with a saddle like that all day, standing tied with a saddle all day, you know, and, but some places I'm at, like I said, I don't want them pawn up the driveway or something or, or whatever. So I can't really work on that while I'm on the road. So I told her about, you know, I understand how she feels and you can't really work on that here, but I said at home, this is what you can do. First of all, have a good built corral. Like my corrals at home are solid drill pipe fence. The mules are not getting through my drill pipe fence. And if they do get through the drill pipe fence, I, I probably should move on from that mule because it's too, it's too big and tough for me. Um, but I got them in, in good safe corrals and practice leaving that mule. So I told her, you know, she, and she has other horses at home, go take your horses out and leave the mule in the corral and he's going to throw a fit and let him work through that and, and do it in small amounts of time. Go take the horse out for 20, 30 minutes and then go put it back and then take it out for 20, 30, 40 minutes to put it back and just keep on building like that to where you can stretch the, stretch the rubber band of time on how, you know, how long that mule's by itself. And I told you the other thing that's going to help quite a lot is when that mule grows up and gets a job, the mule's a two-year-old. It's not started yet. Hasn't even done a lot of groundwork yet. Um, so the mental engagement is not there on this mule. Uh, so I told her as soon as you get to ride and you get to working, you get this mule to thinking, it, it will have a different way about it. It won't be so crazy herd bound and so crazy about pushing gates down because you'll have a little mental engagement. It's kind of like when you send your kids to, to first grade, finally, they go do a full day of school. All you mothers listening are nodding your heads, I bet, because they come back from a full day of school a little different than they were when they're three years old and four years old in preschool and five years old in kindergarten where they only go to school for a couple hours. They go to school all day. They come home a little differently as first graders. And um, that that mental engagement is so critical for them. And so I said, that'll help too. The other thing I told her, and you guys that our regular podcast listeners have heard me talk about this a lot is a high line. I would put this mule on a high line and let him sort life out. That's a great place for him to be tied up. It's safe. And he's not going to, you know, just be constricted to where he has to learn to weave or learn to paw. He can move on the high line. 
but it also picks up on that rain, picks up on the halter rather, just like you would with your rain, and teaches them to roll the hinds, and you get some good things out of being on a high line. It's not just standing tied that you get out of it. You teach these son of a guns how to rain on the on a high line. It's brilliant. It's one of my favorite tools. I told Beth if I if if you told me I can only have tool I can only have two tools for my mulemanship journey, I would choose a high line and a snaffle bit. That's what I'd choose. Those two things, um, because uh, those two tools is uh, they're kind of the foundation of everything that we do. Anyway, so hopefully Beth will uh, will get some of that stuff going. She's going to come to our clinic in a few weeks in Indiana. And um, I will keep you guys updated. Hopefully when she gets there, there's maybe some changes and some progress made. And maybe I can give you another update there. Now, uh, there's there's one other thing I want to talk about here. Uh, I, um, well, I guess I got a couple things I want to talk about. I just... Uh, one of the ladies here, um, she had a meal named Oscar. Her name is Lisa. Um, but she... She was. She asked, "How come my, my mule is great at home, but here at the clinic it, it's not going that great? And when I go out on the trail, it doesn't go that great. But they're fine at home. Why? How come my mule is so good at home, but not good anywhere else?" And um, there's two things that I I I told her about. Now, there's the familiarity complex that I've I've told you all about this on the podcast many times. When y- your mules, you know, they are wired to get comfortable and to get familiar. They need to get comfortable and familiar. So they will get used to their surroundings, the routine, the things around them. They will confirm that those things are not dangerous. You know, equine, basically everything is a, everything to them is dangerous until confirmed otherwise. It, it's a, it's a false, what, false positive, right? Every, everything is going to eat me. Oh, until you confirm that it's not going to eat me. Okay. That's kind of how they think. So you at home, they've confirmed that they're safe. That's their environment. Nothing bothers them. They have yet to be eaten by a lion at home. Life is good at home, okay? But you take them to a new environment, and now there is a chance they could get eaten, they think, in their minds. So you, you lose the familiar part of it, okay? So that's the one part that I told her about. The other part, though, is this. Is oftentimes, we will think we have these meals so great at home so great doing this and and this can happen even going down the trail so great going down the trail because a lot of people ride down the trails and their mules are fine on the trail then you take them into the arena and they have a fit i want my mule good everywhere whether i'm in the arena today i'm out on the trail today out on the mountain out on the desert out moving cows in the pasture riding down the road with my kid whatever i want my mule the same everywhere i'm at okay but what happens, a lot of times they get just stuck in this little, um, this just just totally comfortable area in their mind. Life is good. And as you're working, you're very routine-oriented. You don't push too much. Therefore, they don't get any little doses of stress. And you want to be able to just put a little, just a little bit of stress, just kind of get them kind of hyper alert, just a little bit of arousal arouse the curiosity and and a slight bit of concern a little bit of curiosity a little bit of concern and uh and then back off but you got to do this continually this is how they're going to learn how they're going to improve um you keep growing these 
these dendrites in their brain all the time and you keep adding more to it and it can look like a maze of this little maze of of knowledge in their brain and anyways you you want to keep doing that but sometimes we do the same thing over and over but worse than doing the same thing because doing the same thing over and over is not bad having a routine is not bad but not arousing that and doing more in the routine or more in the same moves. You guys, there's only so many things you can do with a mule, right? There's, and a horse. They can go forward, then go back. They can turn left and right. Okay. You hope they don't go up and down too much. Um, there's only a few things they can do. So how can you keep improving that? Well, you you ask a bit more out of them. You you push it a little bit more. You ask it quicker. Um, you you add this little amount of stress in there and then you back off and you let them find the answer and feel the reward. And that's how you can get this optimal, optimal learning frame of mind at home. And then you will see by doing that, they will be better elsewhere. Um, you'll, you'll, you'll get this, you'll get this elsewhere and, um, they'll get to where, when you go out on the trail, you'll get some more consistency. Um, they'll be able to handle that stress a bit better. So that's pretty important to me. Okay, now the last thing that I want to tell you about, okay? Um, Zelda the Zorse. Now, if you don't know who Zelda the Zorse is, you need to go to your Facebook page and type in Zelda the Zorse, okay? Because our host here, Jerry Johnson, he's the one that owns Zelda the Zorse. So um, now Zorses are interesting critters. Uh, a disclaimer that Jerry would like me to say is Jerry does not endorse owning a Zorse. Um, he does not think people should have Zorses. Uh, he calls Zelda a unicorn because she is one of a kind. She's very gentle. Um, partly because she's out of a big Belgian mare and very docile and quiet. Um, but, but they should, you, you all should know typical sources are extremely challenging to handle. Um, they have a, a very high fight and flight instinct. Um, much more difficult to deal with than horse or mule for sure. Okay. So, Anyways, but Jerry owns Zelda the Zorse, okay? And this thing is just massive. Go to my Instagram. If you want to see me, what I look like next to this Zorse, go to my Instagram or my Facebook page. Just look up TS Mules on Instagram or Ty Evans on Instagram, and you can find me on there. Uh, and go give go give my page a like and follow me um, if you like to, but... Go check out my page on Instagram. And you'll see how little I look next to Zelda. She is so massive. She is a legitimate 16-2 hands. Okay. If you guys have seen me ride my mule Riata. Um, those of you that are familiar with her. She's 15-3. She's big. But look at Zelda. She's 16-2. And just massive. A massive neck. A huge creature. Um, anyways. I was, uh, Sky and I were about to go for a little walk with the family. I go over there and say hi to Jerry. He's riding Zelda in the arena and he says, Hey, you want to ride her? 
Like, yeah, I want to ride her. Uh, but I got my little moccasins on, you know, we're just going to go for a walk and I, I don't got my boots on or anything. And I'm kind of done for the day. And, and of course, Jerry's taller than me, longer legs than me. So I go to swing on and, uh, the good thing is, is Jerry's legs are longer. So the stirrups were longer. The bad thing is once I'm up there, I can't reach the stirrups at all. <laughs> so I look like this little toddler on this mule. I just look teeny on this thing. Uh, not, I just said mule. It's a Zorse. Uh, I look like a toddler on this Zorse and, um, <laughs> but it was so cool. I was not going to pass up a chance to ride a Zorse. And of course I, you know, when I post on Instagram, people are saying, stripes are too short, dummy. Yeah, I, yeah, I know, but I'm not going to pass up a chance to ride a Zorse. Okay. Um, and it was, it was a funny looking picture and I got a video of me riding it. Uh, so you can check that out, but it was a treat to be able to ride a, a massive Zorse like Zelda. Um, Zelda's 20-something years old. I can't remember what Jerry told me. 20-something years old and been around. Very famous. Um, we posted her that video and it's got, I don't know, like 300,000 views or something like that. Um, pretty cool creature. So check out Zelda the Zorse on there. Very, very interesting animal. Um it was a treat to be able to ride her. I have I don't have much experience with Zorses. I've seen I've seen a few Zorses before. Um, when I was at the very first Mule Trainers Challenge, uh, the Colt Strength Competition I did back in 2015, a fellow there had a Zorse, and it ran off. Buck started bucking, dumped him off. That was my first experience watching a Zorse, and it was a handful. <laughs> then uh, I had the opportunity. I don't know, like. 12 years ago, I don't know, 10 years ago. Um, yeah, probably about 10 years ago to work with a zebra. Uh, and you know, just cause I work with one doesn't really give me any knowledge. Um, it's like, it always annoys me when somebody has had one mule and they are an expert on a mule. Uh, and they tell you how either terrible or wonderful it is or whatever. So I worked with one zebra and it was terrible. Um, it was, I did not get along with it. All I had to do is teach the thing how to lead. And I barely, I barely, uh, I don't even, well, to today's standards, I did not achieve my goal to my standards 10 years ago. Yeah. I got it to follow me around a little bit, but it was not great. And it kicked me multiple times hard. So I don't recommend working with zebras and sources. I have seen some people have some success with some zebras. Um, so that's kind of neat. Some people get along with them and, um, maybe I'll run into somebody someday that has some luck with that. So anyways, to say the least, Hopkins, Michigan was another fantastic clinic. We had a good time, good people. I absolutely love the camaraderie, the, uh, the, the closeness we all felt, you know, being able to hang out, eat breakfast, lunch, and dinner together, sit around the fire together every night. Um, just what a great experience. So Anyways, we plan to come back to Michigan in 2023. Looking forward to it. So anyways, we will call this, uh, we'll, we'll call it quits on this debrief. Uh, if you've enjoyed listening, I would appreciate it so much if you would take a screenshot of this episode and post it on your social media of choice. If you post it on Instagram, make sure to tag me at TS Mules on there. If you post it on Facebook, tag me on there, Ty Evans. And, uh, yeah, post a picture of it. I'd appreciate that. So 
And also, if you listen on Apple Podcasts, why I'd be so grateful if you would leave us a five-star rating and tell me what you think of it. Leave a review. So, hey, until next time, God bless you all, and we will see you down the road. Okay, we need to thank our friends at Lacey Boots. Our good pal Nancy Baldock got Sky hooked on Lacey Boots. These boots are some of the most comfortable on the market. They are C-width, which gives feet and toes more room, and the taller boots come in three calf sizes so they can fit just about anyone. These highly technical boots are extremely comfortable, fashionable, and add extreme impact protection. Lacey Boots also has a line of Western shirts called the Cool Cowgirl. With cooling technology, these shirts are soft and stretchy, fully perforated for airflow to help keep you cool. Find Lacey Boots on Facebook or visit LaceyBoots.com.